This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. We are going to continue um, through our series um, in Colossians that we're calling Anchored, looking at a passage um, at the end of chapter 3 going into the very beginning of chapter 4 that uh, needs some work um, so that we can properly understand the message. So I want to give you a minute to be turning in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. If you have them with you, you can follow along in the app under the sermon notes section that's available for you. I want to say one of my preaching professors and theology professors in undergraduate um, made a statement once that I'll always remember. He said, great preaching, he said, preaching and teaching are, are not the same thing, but great preaching always involves teaching, and great teaching always partakes of the spirit of preaching. And I've found that to be absolutely true across the years. And I'll say this morning, this morning is a passage that is going to require both teaching and preaching because it is one that has been historically um, both misunderstood and misused in the lives of people and in the life of the church. So my prayer this morning has been that, that we will get it right here this morning and that God will use it and by his spirit grow us, edify us, and form more deeply in us the image and the character of Christ as it relates to our homes and the roles in which we find ourselves. So um, we're going to primarily look at verses 18 of chapter 3 through uh, chapter 4, verse 1. But uh, what is often called the household code, a household code where Paul is addressing husbands and wives and parents and children and slaves and masters, and we'll deal with that when we get to it. But what often happened is we, we treat this like it was just dropped in accidentally at this point in Colossians and stands on its own, and it absolutely does not. Paul is not a dummy. He's making one coherent argument all the way through the book of Colossians. So what I'd like for us to do is to start back up in verse 12, and I'll read uh, chapter 3, verse 12 through chapter 4, verse 1 so that we can hear the flow of Paul's argument. Then I'll pray for us. And I want to give you um, some reminders uh, to keep at the forefront of your thinking as you approach um, the household code in this passage. But let's look at verse 12 and read. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, 
whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide for your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, through the power and the goodness of your Spirit, would you open these verses to us this morning? God, help us to understand first Paul's message to the Colossians in his day, and God, your message through Paul to us today. Help our homes be places where Christ is honored, where peace reigns. God, forgive us for when and how we so often fall short of that. And God, I pray in this space this morning, God, that there would be a sense of delight before you, God, a sense of acceptance of who you are in our lives and your goodness and your grace. God, mold us and make us during our time together more and more into the image of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, I want to give you, as we start out, a few things to remember when you look at a passage like this, particularly verses 18 through 4-1, where Paul lays out his instructions to wives, to husbands, to fathers or parents, to children, and finally to masters and to slaves. The first is this, that the trajectory of the passage, the trajectory of the passage matters as much as the content. I'll explain that in just a second. The trajectory of the passage matters as much as the content. What I'm saying here is that the direction in which the passage in its day was seeking to push and to pull the culture and the norms and the practices of Paul's day matters. So you've got to understand what was normal in Paul's day to understand the direction that Paul's teaching is seeking to lead things. Ben Witherington III, a New Testament scholar, said this, when compared with ancient household codes, so many codes like this in Paul's day in the Greco-Roman world, when compared with ancient household codes of Paul's day, one is profoundly struck by not just the Christian elements, but also the social engineering that is being undertaken here to limit the abuse of power by the head 
of the household. When you understand, and many of those codes still exist, both in Jewish literature and outside of Jewish literature and Hellenistic or Greek literature of the day, and when you read those household codes and you read Paul's, you find such a, a, a striking difference. It's, it's amazing, first of all, that heads of households are, are even given any instruction at all in the Apostle Paul. Usually it was taken for granted that they did as they pleased. And the instructions regarding obedience and the master or the head of the home's authority was given to those who were under that authority alone. And the fact that the head of the household is addressed here at all is stunning. And it's equally shocking, equally shocking that Paul's uh, assumption here is that women and children and slaves in his day may be addressed as moral agents equally able to understand and respond to Paul's teaching. Do you understand how Paul is lifting up in his household code there, uh, the, the person in place of women, the person in place of children in that society, and the person in place of slaves in that society? He's lifting them up onto an equal footing with the head of the household, stunning and shocking. So you've got to remember that the trajectory of the passage matters as much as the content does. Where is Paul trying to move the culture and the practice of his day with what he's writing? Second is this. Paul's household codes are representative, not exhaustive. Paul's household codes are representative, not exhaustive. And what I mean by that is Paul is never saying in one place everything that he has to say about something. Because he's not simply writing, he's not sitting down, opening his laptop, pulling up Word and saying, now let me say everything I have to say empowered by the Holy Spirit about this subject. Paul is addressing particular issues in particular places at a particular time among particular people in every single one of his letters. And how many of you, when you give instruction, say everything that you have to say about that thing at a given time? Not only do you not do it, you can't do it. Most of us couldn't even remember everything we knew at one time about some subject. I had a, another professor in seminary who said once, whenever you speak uh, or teach on theology or biblical studies, you have to say everything all the time, or some people will think you intentionally left something out. And that's true. We can't ever say everything all the time. Paul is not trying to do that here. Uh, G.B. Card said, Paul is a man of the mid-first century advising his contemporaries on how they may best apply their new faith to the social conditions of their day and specifically to the family as they knew it. Card is exactly right. Paul is writing to a group of believers he's never met, remember? Paul's never met the Colossians. So you can only push so hard with people you have no actual relationship with, even when you are a well-known apostle. Paul is writing to them, and he's simply saying, now that you are in Christ, and remember, he's writing to a household with the assumption that the entire household are now believers, They've come to faith in Jesus Christ. They have union in Christ. And he's saying, now that you're in Christ, this is how the home is to function. 
Colossians, husbands be like this, wives be like this, children be like this, fathers or parents be like this, slaves be like this, masters be like this. And if the slave master stuff is wearing you out before we get there, um, you can substitute in our day, you can begin to think about the boss-employee relationship. Slavery was not a good institution then, as it has never been throughout human history in whatever society or culture it has expressed itself, and it has expressed itself as a practice in every human culture and place throughout human history that we have recorded so far. But it was very different than our modern American lens for slavery, so you've got to keep that in mind too, that it was uh, usually either people conquered in a military campaign, or most often people who were working off a debt who found themselves in servitude to a master for a time. Still a dehumanizing place, but it was part of the fabric of the culture. And even though Paul is not advocating for the the overthrow of that, he is, through the guidance of God and his spirit, beginning to place limitations and stipulations on that that will eventually choke it to death. And with it, the entire Roman Empire, which could not exist without it. One of the commentaries I was reading as I was researching this passage had this to say about the representative versus exhaustive nature of Paul's comments here in Colossians. It said, identifying this section as a household code may give the false impression that Paul is providing a comprehensive treatment of family relationships. But if this were the case, one would expect a discussion of such significant topics as the foundation of marriage, like in Ephesians 5. Faithfulness within marriage, like in 1 Corinthians 6. Divorce and remarriage, as in 1 Corinthians 7. Status and behavior of widows, as in 1 Timothy 5. The relationship between believers and non-believers in the same household, as in 1 Corinthians 7. Training children in faith, as in 1 Corinthians 5 and Titus 1. Conflicts between masters and slaves, as we find in Philemon, or rules concerning the release of slaves, as we find in Philemon, and so on, right? So we can't take one particular passage and build an entire life view or theology out of one single passage. We've got to read it, one, in its context, its literary context in the book it's in, the verses before it, the verses after it. The New Testament writers are making a coherent, progressive argument. And then we've got to to read it and interpret it in light of what the rest of Scripture says as God is informing us on things. That's two. Third and final thing to remember is that the passage here, the passage here is Christ-centered not authority-centered. The passage here is Christ-centered, not authority-centered. It has at the very center of it and woven throughout it the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ, not ultimately who's over who in what kind of relationship. And you see the centrality of this in how many times the title Lord for Christ is in the passage, 318, 320, 322, 323, 324, 41, it's almost every single verse. Christ is saying, you and I are to relate to one another in our households based on and because of who Christ is and who we are in him. Now, 
with those three things in the back of your mind, let's look at the passage itself here, beginning with verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. And of course, we have the the parallel passage, which is um, longer and more complex in Ephesians chapters 5 and 6 here. But Paul says, wives, submit yourself to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. He's saying, um, ladies, wives, this is God's, not only God's call for you, uh, uniquely and especially in the marriage in this way, but also you're to do it in a way that is Christ-honoring. You're to do it in a way that, that would reflect the goodness and the glory of God as you walk in Christian marriage. Now, Paul is not addressing the role of Christian women to all Christian men or to all men in general, nor is he addressing the role of women in the church, but the role of Christian wives and Christian husbands in a Christian household. It is also important to distinguish the word Paul uses here from the word that he uses with parents and children and slaves and masters. There it's about obedience. That's a different word than he uses here with submission. Robert Wall in his Colossians own, or his commentary on Colossians uh, said, if the wife sees herself as subservient to her husband, she will allow him to dominate and even abuse her. And this has borne such drastic and disastrous fruit at many times in the history of the church. And it has been at many times the history of church preached this way, that the husband was the head of the household and as such, he by and large could do as he pleased. And if it wasn't preached that way, it was sort of viewed that way in church. And husbands were not held to the same account that wives were. He says, if, however, she views herself as Christ's disciple and her husband's equal in Christ, her understanding of submission will be changed. She will submit herself to her husband in the same way that Christ submitted himself to God the Father. Being made equal in Christ will radically alter the way two disciples relate to each other as husband and wife. And this is exactly right. The, the Greek word that Paul uses here for submit is the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians 15, 28 for Christ submitting to God the Father. And we know there's no inequality between Jesus Christ and God the Father. It's the same word that's used in Ephesians 5.21 and Galatians 5.13 and Philippians 1, or Philippians 2 rather, verses 3 and 4, to relate to believers submitting to one another. And let me tell you this as a married man who's been married 23 years. 23 years. Got the nod from Sharon, so I got it right. Any husband who's been married more than a few days who says he never submits to his wife is a sociopath or a liar, right? And if he's not careful, and that's true, he's going to wind up on Dateline. Because in Christ, first and foremost, we are to live out our identity as Christians, which means first and foremost, the primary call is that Sharon and I live in mutual submission to one another as children of God, as a son and a daughter of the King. 
And what, what Paul is, is getting at here, and it's funny that the, the wives are never, like, they're never instructed to love their husbands, right? There's all kinds of things we could, we could say about that. But they're not. Rather, uh, this idea of submitting to their husbands here has to do with following the example of Christ. It is Christ's humility and service that wives are specially to emulate in the home through their submission to their husbands. Paul is saying it is this particular unique characteristic of Christ, particularly his humility and his service that you are to emulate, especially in the home as it relates to your submission to your husband. It's not his dominance over you. It's about the the aspect of God's character that God has called you to most shine in the home. Does that make sense? It's not that the husband is not required to walk in humility and service, but God's saying, I have a, a unique characteristic of my son and your Lord Jesus Christ that I want you to emulate and to shine in your home, and you do that as you walk in submission to, again, your Christian husband. This is right here all this passage is dealing with. Christian households, Christian husbands, Christian wives, and so on and so forth throughout the household. 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, husbands have to be told to love their wives. But think about Paul's culture. Marriages were not set up based on love then. You with me? Right? If I have a daughter and you've got a donkey and an AK-47, not in that day, right? But maybe a spear that I like um, and a few coins, then, you know, you get my daughter. And Paul is saying, now that you're in Christ, husbands, you are in Christ's love and called to reflect it, and you are to love your wives and not be harsh with them. Let me just ask a question. Um, husbands, have we ever been known to be harsh with our wives? Yeah. Yeah. Paul is no fool. God is no fool. He will not be mocked. He knows the tendencies of men and women, the tendencies of husbands and wives. Paul knew some of the situation of what was going on in the church in Colossians. It's very natural that as Paul is addressing our relationship to, to, to one another as those who are in Christ, our relationship um, to the church and worship as those who are in Christ, that he flows right into our relationship to, to others in our household as we are in Christ. Most churches were meeting, and the church in Colossae was meeting in households in that day. So Paul is given the instruction needed needed to the people that it's needed to to go to in his day. And this issue of loving your wives, husbands, loving your wives, Paul would expound on this in Ephesians, say, as Christ loves his church, has to do, again, as it does with wives, with following the example of Christ. And it's Christ's sacrificial and self-giving nature that husbands are specially called to emulate in the home through their love for their wives. Husbands, it is the sacrificial and self-giving nature of Christ that you are specially, and I'm saying specially, not especially on purpose. 
in case some of you are hearing that and it's weirding you out, um, that you are specially called to emulate in the home through your love for your wife, through your love for your wife. It's that part of God's character that we see so clearly in Christ that God is saying, husbands, this particularly, are you to, to live with humility and, and a servant's heart in your home? Absolutely. Are you to live with humility and a servant's heart towards your wife? Absolutely. Are you at times going to submit to her? Absolutely. But the call I have for you, particularly and uniquely in the home, is to love your wife in this way that your behavior reflects the sacrificial and self-giving nature of Christ himself in the home, in the way that you love your wife. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Now, it is not helpful to quote this to your children. Let's just be honest. In moments of tension, when has it ever been helpful to you for someone to quote Scripture at you? I'm a pastor and it ticks me off. Like, you want to play that game? Let's get it on. Right? It's not helpful to quote Scripture to your children in this way. But children, this is God's call for you where you are, at your station in life. And part of the way that you love him and part of the way that you demonstrate your union with Christ, if you uh, have had that experience and given your life to Christ, is by obeying your parents in everything. Whatever they ask you to do, you're to do that. And the assumption here is because people are always like, well, what if they ask me to do something God wouldn't have me to do? Paul's assumption here, again, is that he's writing to Christian households, right? So they're going to ask you to do crazy stuff like pick up your room, take the trash out, make your bed, take your crazy meds, whatever it is. Whatever it is, Paul says, kids, obey your parents and everything. It pleases the Lord when you do that. It delights the Lord when you simply obey your parents. When they ask you to do something and you say yes and then you do it. That last part is important. That you say yes and then you do it. Fathers, and we could say parents, obviously in Paul's day, we understand why he would simply address fathers here. Parents is absolutely appropriate here. Do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. I gotta be honest with you. Um, I had a bit of a moment last night. Several moments in a row. And this morning before I could preach, I tried to track down one of my kids over here and apologize and ask for forgiveness. I couldn't find them, so it'll just have to wait. But I felt that burden of conviction. It's so hard when you're a parent, right? And you're tired and you're exhausted and you're frustrated to not get down and behave like you're 11. But Paul says, God desires parents that you do not. It is a command. It is a command so that when we violate it, we're actually walking in sin before God in our homes. You are not to embitter your children. In fact, all of these are imperatives. They're all stated in the tense of command. You're not to embitter your children or they will become 
discouraged. Now, this idea of embittering your, your children or provoking them, fleshed out is to make them resentful or bitter, to exasperate or demoralize your kids. It's that sense of getting them to the point where they say, no matter what I do or what I say, it's not right. I'm always wrong. And Paul is saying, parents, you've got a responsibility as those in the position of power in your home and authority before God to deal with your children gently and in a Christ-like manner. Paul goes on to address then in verses 22 through 4.1, he gives the most attention to the relationship between slaves and masters. Slaves and masters. Slaves, he says, obey your earthly masters. That qualifying word there is significant. What Paul is doing is he's making very clear that the ultimate master here is God. It's not anyone on earth. This is not found in any other household codes, this qualifying statement. It's simply your masters. But he says, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Now, as we're kind of expounding this and working through it, I want you to think about your relationship as an employee to your boss. Because this translates very simply and very appropriately into that. Your work life. Or maybe you're in school right now. The way that you relate to your teachers, to the assignments they give you. To what your coaches ask of you. Obey them in everything. Not just to please them and not just when they're watching. Right? I spent some time working in the blue-collar world when I was younger. And... There was a regular issue. We've talked before about how the blue-collar world has its issues and the white-collar world has its issues. Well, one of the issues in the blue-collar world is this issue of trying to do, by and large, uh, as little as possible and still get away with it. In the week or two, get your pay, spend your money, go to the game, come back and do it over and over and over. And Paul is saying it, it is not to be that way among those who are in Christ, even slaves in his day. Verse 23, whatever you do, now, here, again, what we just read uh, earlier in verse 17 of chapter 3, Paul's uh, commission and admonition to all believers, right? Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. He's saying what you're doing, you're ultimately doing to the glory and honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not your earthly master, not your boss, not your supervisor, but to the Lord. And Paul would say, when your boss asks you to do something or tells you to do something, the only right answer for a Christian employee is yes, sir, yes, ma'am. And then give the best that you have to give to the task that your boss has given you to do. Verse 24. Since... Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord you are serving. What's amazing here in Paul's day and what is so subversive and we cannot miss is that Paul is putting slaves on an equal plane with their masters. He is addressing them as children of God who are going to inherit 
all that God's kingdom has to offer his children. And he's saying, your work is not only work for the Lord, it is your service to the Lord. As you do your job well, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's a reminder, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. There is no favoritism, masters. Remember, we put the periods and the commas in here, doing the best we can. There is no favoritism, masters. Provide your slaves with what is right and fair. You hear Paul beginning to place limitations and restrictions on the institution of slavery in his day? Beginning to qualify it? Beginning to put the seeds of its destruction as a human institution in there? Provide your slaves with what is right and fair. Maybe you're not an employee this morning. Maybe you're an employer or a boss or a business owner. God is going to hold you accountable for the way that you provide for your employees. Salary, care, encouragement. You stand before God as someone tasked in that position to reflect his goodness in that way. He says, masters, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Culturally shocking in Paul's day that heads of households and masters would be told they have an ultimate master over them as well, one to whom they'll give an account to. And that they're actually on a level playing field. It would have been unheard of Unheard of. It's unheard of some part in some places in the South. Now, to tell a man that he's on an equal, I mean, that will acknowledge it verbally, but not in practice. That a, that a man, a husband, a father is on an equal footing with his wife, with women in general, with children, with people of different socioeconomic statuses and different races. But this is exactly what Paul is saying here. And I don't want us to miss the fact that husbands and wives are addressed first here. Husbands and wives are addressed first because humanly speaking, homes are parent-centered, not children-centered. If you center your home around your children, you're going to fracture it. And you're going to teach them the idolatrous idea that so permeates our culture that the world is about them and their achievement and their success and the brands they wear and how they look and how popular they are. And they're going to graduate one day and then you know what they are? Their social security numbers out in the big bad world. And they're going to find, I think eventually we're going to find That it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work for me to walk through life. That's called narcissism, thinking everything orbits around me. If your home is child-centered and not parent-centered, you're going to be in trouble. The question is only when and how much trouble are you going to be in. I'll say this about slavery too. Paul, Paul here we know this. I just want to put it in 
in a succinct form. Paul is addressing an existing situation of Christian households that have slaves, and he is clearly trying to minimize the possibility for abusive and unchristian behavior by either the master or the slave. All right, the master or the slave. We know that, put it in economic terms in our days, we know that both the over-resourced and the under-resourced can take advantage of one another, can they not? Yes, they can. Yes, they can. He is regulating an existing condition, not endorsing the institution of slavery. Regulating it, not endorsing it. And the same applies to his comments about the patriarchal family structure. Every time the Bible gives us a view of patriarchy, it's a negative one. It's one that goes poorly. Husbands and wives. Let, let me sum this up for you in, in, in one question here. When it comes to the household, here's the guiding question. And this is really the guiding question for us living out theologically centered lives that are centered on Christ. What does love require of me? In this conversation, in this moment, this afternoon, this evening, tomorrow, at work, at home, as a parent, as a husband or wife, as a friend, we could go on and on. As a child, what does love require of me? Husbands and wives, your primary responsibility in your marriage is to help one another become who God created you to be. Husbands, your primary responsibility to your wife is to help her become the woman that God has created her and called her and gifted her to be. Wives, your primary responsibility toward your husband is to help him become the man that God has called and created and gifted him to be. Sometimes you just got to get together and say, can we just push reset? Huh. It's been a rough few days. It's been your fault. It's been my fault. Let's just, let's start clean. Maybe some of you need to do that with your spouse this morning. Just reach over and squeeze their hand. Maybe they'll squeeze your back, or maybe they won't. And you just have to wait in suspense until we're done here. Kids, most of your parents are trying to do the best they can. This parenting gig is hard. It's hard. We need your grace. We need your forgiveness. We are imperfect parents. Parents, your kids need your grace. They are bursting at times with crazy unregulated amounts of chemicals and things. And they're processing, and their brains aren't fully formed yet. That's important to remember. However many times you have to say that as one of them storms off, well, their brain's not fully formed. So I understand that response. They need grace and forgiveness. And for us to remember that we are much older. And we've been given by God the responsibility for their nurture and their care and their discipling. Bosses and employees, same thing. Same thing. What does love demand of you at work? How do you serve God at work in ways that honor him? Let me leave you with this central takeaway. 
the central takeaway. The, the, the really, the guiding question, the question that, that exists over all questions in this passage. See, the question we just addressed, what does love demand of me, works in any passage, any situation. For what Paul is saying, here's the central takeaway here. How do I best honor Christ in whatever position I find myself? How do I best honor Christ in whatever position I find myself? Whatever role, whatever domain of life, this is what Paul is pushing us to think about. How do I honor Christ in the relationships and roles in which he's placed me? If you ask that question of the Lord, I trust him to answer you. And to clothe all of these particular admonitions and commands given our particular roles in the verses preceding it that teach us all as followers of Christ that we are to walk in humility and gentleness. We're to submit to one another as to the Lord. We're to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and honor him in whatever we do and the way that we do it. Let's stand this morning. Just a minute, I want to pray over us in our homes. When I finish praying, as the band begins to play, I invite you, if you're a baptized believer and you feel led by God to step out to observe communion, participate in communion this morning, you can make your way to the front or to the back, tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, move over to the side, just spend a little time with the Lord. Maybe you need to ask him to forgive you. Forgive me, God, I've not been the husband. I should be. I've not been the father. I should be. I've not been the child. I've not been the employee, the boss that I should be. Help me, God. Help me. Cleanse me of all my unrighteousness and restore to me the joy of your salvation. Guide me in truth. You're free to do that at any time while we're singing. Let's pray. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.